Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke and this is a special episode of the Cone of Shame show. Guys, I have an interview today with Dr. Tracy Witte. She's a researcher just published in JAVMA, some brand new research on suicide in the veterinary profession. Everybody should be aware of this. I hope you guys will listen to her talk about her research. It is really interesting and it's important stuff to be aware of. So uh, if you're up for it, please tune in and hang on. If suicide is a difficult topic for you, maybe skip this episode. That's obviously totally fine. If you are someone who is having thoughts of suicide, please text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor right away or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Gang, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to a special Cone of Shame podcast. I am super happy to be here. I am here with uh, Dr. Tracy Witte. Uh, Dr. Witte is an associate professor in the Department of, Psy- of Psychology at Auburn University, as well as a li- licensed therapist. Her research is primarily focused on understanding and preventing suicidal behavior with a line of work investigating suicide and other negative mental health outcomes in veterinarians, other vet pro- professionals, and vet students. Um, Dr. Witte has a new article that is out in uh, in Javma. Uh, just it just came out a couple of days ago, September first, and um, it's it's pretty important stuff. And so I was so thrilled when she agreed to come on the podcast and talk through everything with me. So, Doctor Woody, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh man, it's my pleasure. So, suicides and deaths of undetermined intent among veterinary professionals from two thousand three through 2014 it's um it's it's maybe not a sexy title but it <laughs> is uh it, it's it's pretty clear what you're talking about are you um well let's let's talk about you from the beginning so so i said a little bit about your background your bio uh can you sort of lay out um how you where are you from and how did you kind of get into into this type of research yeah so i Graduated from the Ohio State University with a bachelor's degree in psychology in 2004. Um, and at that time, when I was an undergraduate, I was interested in, um, I, I started out volunteering on a suicide hotline because I wanted to get some kind of clinical experiences or parallel. And I found that work really rewarding. But I also uh, became aware of the fact that there was just a real gap in our understanding about suicide in general from a scientific perspective. So I became really interested in um, going the research route for trying to prevent suicide. Um, So from uh, after my undergraduate training, I attended grad school at Florida State University, and I worked under Dr. Thomas Joyner, who's a leading expert in researching suicide. And um, so I was there up through 2009. At that point, um, for our degree, we complete a one-year full-time clinical residency. So I did that at Brown Medical School. So I moved up to Rhode Island. 
and I um, quickly realized that I just wasn't prepared for a real winter anymore and <laughs> was very happy to secure a faculty position at Auburn University in Alabama. So I started here in 2010, and um, this is where I've been ever since. And um, <clears throat> so throughout my graduate training and then through a number of clinical experiences and then my research program that I developed at Auburn, my work is primarily focused on suicide, as you mentioned. Um, but really, I became interested in um, suicide among veterinarians when I started here at Auburn. Um, and, and really, it was kind of a just a coincidental thing in that I moved here and one of the first things you hear about uh, developing your own line of research is you want to figure out, well, what's a unique angle that you can take? What's a contribution you can make that's distinct from your previous advisor? And so I looked around at Auburn and I noticed we had a vet school, which is, as you know, pretty unique. Not many universities have one. And I started to wonder, you know, I wonder if veterinarians are at higher risk for suicide because I knew that physicians were. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started reading that literature and got really interested and did my first study um, that it was during my first year or two here, but it didn't get published till 2013. And I was looking at um, uh, experience with euthanasia in vet students and whether it's associated with developing fearlessness about the idea of your own death. So this was just a self-report study. And in that study, we found that um, students who had had more experience um, performing or observing euthanasia were less scared about the idea of their own death. And what was really interesting to me was that this appeared to be unique to um, euthanasia with companion animals. So we looked separately at euthanasia with like lab animals or um, farm animals and didn't see that same relationship. And it also was unique um, compared with uh, necropsy experience or um, um, surgery. So there was something unique about euthanasia. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll let you, I, I've been talking a long time. Oh yeah. No, that, no, that's, um, that's fascinating. It's something that, um, that gets discussed a bit and, and I, I haven't, um, I haven't seen, I have to look into this research now because this is fascinating because I, I've often, yeah. well, I'm often wondered if we don't do a sales pitch for euthanasia all day, every day. And we talk about euthanasia as it's a gift and an end of suffering and purely a very, very much an acceptable pathway for pet owners to take for their pets. And I, it yeah. does make sense. You know, when we look at the, the research in, in suicide, you know, cognitive availability is a big part of the suicide process. It's getting to be mentally okay with the idea of ending your own life. And that is like one of the, the big boxes that has to get checked on that pathway. And so you're, you're sort of found early on that veterinarians may be, uh, be faster to check that box and move on than maybe the general population. Is that true? Yeah, at least that, that study showed that there was something going on there, that that experience, exactly what you said, where it's like, I think that's something very unique about your profession. Um, even other professions that engage in euthanasia, like um, neuroscience researchers sacrificing animals for those studies, they're not talking to an owner of that lab rat and explaining the process and um, 
they're not viewing those animals in the same way that companion animals are viewed. So I think that it's psychologically distinct from um, even euthanasia or, um, you know, with uh, farm animals. Yeah. Well, that that's fascinating. I, I wonder, um, and it's sort of spitballing, I wonder if it's something about how we kind of, I think a lot of us see pets as family members. You know, I wonder if we're yeah. sort of, anthropomorphizing uh maybe more than than large animal vets would you know or food animal vets or or pathologists who are doing necropsy i i i wonder if that's sort of i wonder if that's the mental path that we sort of take right and and i do want to throw in that i think that in terms of being able to perform this really critical role of um euthanizing pets who are suffering um there's something protective about it not being this like tragic, horrible experience for the veterinarian every time they do it. I think that that's not in and of itself a bad thing. It's probably protective. But if that's combined with someone who is suicidal themselves, then that combination, I think, is more dangerous or something we need to worry oh, about. That That's a great point. I talk a lot to, to you know, people entering the field, especially, you know, um, high school kids that will come and sort of shadow at the vet clinics and stuff. We start to talk to them. And, um, you know, some people have a real problem with euthanasia when they first sort of encounter it. And, um, and I, I myself have talked to people and sort of said, you know, there is sort of some self-protection steps that we take, you know what I mean? And we start to, you really do kind of have to buy into euthanasia as a gift, as an end of suffering. You think about the benefits that it brings. And at least that, that that's definitely how I had kind of gotten my head into that place of feeling okay about what we do. So no, I, I to your point, I, I think that I think we definitely um, I think we I think we definitely learn that. I, and, and if, if and if we don't, I think it's I think it'd be a really difficult job. Yeah. And so I would never suggest that we want to interrupt that process right. of um, get, getting comfortable um, performing this really critical task. And it's interesting for me as a non veterinarian um, getting into this work initially you know, of course, I thought of euthanasia as something that's really um, unique to the profession or fairly unique to the profession. Um, and when I talk to other people about this work, they're all like, oh, well, veterinarians, maybe they're more suicidal because they feel guilty about euthanasia or it's this really terrible thing. But, but most of the veterinarians I talk to um, describe that process in the way that you have here, which is it's it's a gift to, to animals who are suffering and that in and of itself isn't a major stressor. There are a lot of other things going on. Yeah. Now that makes it. So how did you make uh, sort of the, the shift from your early research over into, um, into, into means into suicide means and into, into your current study that just came out? Yeah. So from that initial study, um, <laughs> I, based on, and, and, so after that initial study, I got connected with um, my collaborator on this most recent paper, Dr. Randy Nett at the CDC, um, and we did a, a paper in 2015 that was also published in JAVMA looking at um, general risk factors for suicide. So you may remember this study, it was a big sample that we recruited, um, almost 12,000 veterinarians. And of course, in that study, it was a self-report study we obviously aren't looking at death by suicide as an outcome, but we are looking at, you know, how common 
um, it was for veterinarians to experience suicide ideations, mm-hmm. thoughts about suicide, depression, right. or have past attempts. Um, and so that paper, um, one thing that stood out to me was that we saw higher rates of suicide ideation in the veterinarians compared to the general population, but we didn't see higher rates of non-fatal suicide attempts. We actually saw lower rates of non-fatal suicide attempts. And so on the one side of things, you could think, well, maybe that's good news. Maybe veterinarians who are suicidal, they're not going on to attempt suicide. But when you couple that finding with the other papers showing higher rates of death by suicide, it paints a different picture where it may be that veterinarians are a little bit more likely to be suicidal. And then when they attempt suicide, they're more likely to have a fatal outcome. Right. Possibly because of this greater access to and knowledge about lethal means like pentobarbital. So from that study, um, that really served as a jumping off point for this most recent paper where instead of... um, collecting self-report data, we were looking at it from the other side of things. So people who had died by suicide, who were in the veterinary profession and looking at different circumstances of death and and methods that were involved. Right. So uh, why don't you walk us through the findings of the research? Yeah. So in this paper, um, we had two main aims. The first aim was to really um, get um, calculate standardized mortality ratios for suicide for veterinary professionals. So what are standardized mortality ratios? It's basically giving us a sense of whether um, these, the individuals in the sample were more likely to die by suicide than people matched um, based on sex and um, race ethnicity. Um, so This study was the first one to look at vet professionals aside from just veterinarians. So we also looked at vet technicians, technologists, assistants, and then we also included lab animal caretakers in there. Um, We also really wanted to look at the role that pentobarbital played in explaining if we found an elevated suicide rate. And this study, because of the nature of the data set, we were able to do a really fine-grained analysis for the first time, really, to see how are these individuals actually dying by suicide, what specific substances are being used. Um, There had been a few other studies showing that veterinarians were more likely to overdose than Mm -hmm. the general population and some evidence that they were more likely to use barbiturates, but no study had really been able to tie that to pentobarbital specifically. Um, So we used the National Violent Death Reporting System, which is a um, CDC-managed data set. And this is a big compilation um, across a number of different states. For our study, we only included 18 states because those were the only ones with data at the time. But now the database has expanded to all 50, which is really cool. Um, And there's a lot of information in these data sets about anyone who's died in those states um, from a violent death and suicide is considered among those. So we focus specifically on the suicides and those who are considered to have deaths of undetermined intent because the idea that some of those are probably just mis- um, classified suicides. Um, We started out with over 200,000 
cases in the sample, so 200,000 individuals, and we had to go through and, and identify who in this in this database, um, who were members of the veterinary profession. So that took a lot of coding and whittling it down. Um, so we identified the vet professionals, and there were only five students in the sample, so we ultimately weren't able to, to get a lot of definitive um, information about vet students and suicide. Right. Um, so the first thing we did was look at um, and calculate standardized mortality ratios, and we found, um, as we expected, elevated suicide mortality for male and female veterinarians. Um, for the first time, we found that um, vet technicians and technologists, both men and women, had elevated suicide mortality compared to the general population. <clears throat> But in contrast, the um, vet assistants and lab animal caretakers did not have elevated suicide risk. Um, the next thing we did was look at, okay, within these groups, what are the most common methods that people are using? And um, among all three of the occupational groups, overdose or poisoning was the most common mechanism of death. But within the category of poisoning, for veterinarians, pentobarbital was the, the number one substance that was used. This is very unusual um, compared to studies in other populations, especially for men. Firearms in the United States are by far the most common method used for suicide death. And so yeah. it's, it stands out that in veterinarians, and including male veterinarians, pentobarbital is the most common individual substance being used, and overdose is the most common method. Um, now, that was not true for the non-veterinarians in the sample. Um, for the others, opioids were more common. Um, and um, it's unclear. We don't have a way to figure out if, if the vet techs are um, who died by suicide in our sample somehow obtained those opioids from the, their workplace. Um, right. For the veterinarians, um, given that pentobarbital itself has this unique use in that profession, um, it's um, we think that it's um, reasonable to infer that this was obtained somehow related to um, the profession itself. Whereas with yeah. opioids, it could be prescriptions or it could be bought on the streets more easily. Right. Um, it, yeah. Right. It, yeah. It, it seems from your research that, that technicians and technologists are, are, um, are more likely than veterinarians compared to the general population to die by suicide. Is that correct? That one's hard to answer. So the, you're right that the standardized mortality ratio, especially for the male vet technicians and technologists, is higher. Um, but we had really wide confidence intervals okay. for them, meaning we have more uncertainty in the estimate. Um, so I wouldn't make too much of, of that. Okay, good. Because um, um, there, as you probably know, among vet technicians and technologists, um, there mostly women um, in the U.S., and so we had just a very small number of men in the sample okay. for that group. Okay, nice. um, Yeah, so I would focus more on the fact that compared to the general population, veterinarians, that technicians and technologists had a higher um, suicide mortality um, for both men and women, whereas for the 
that third occupational group, the lab animal caretakers combined with um, <clears throat> vet assistants, they did not have elevated suicide mortality. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, so once we, we had that um, pattern, so we saw that for veterinarians, pentobarbital was being used most commonly out of any other method. What we wanted to see was whether um, taking the individuals out of the sample who had used pentobarbital, what would we get for our standardized mortality ratio? Um, and what we found is that when we removed those individuals, the um, standardized mortality ratio for suicide um, for male and female veterinarians went back to what you would expect in the general population. Um, that was not true for the vet technicians. There were, I think, around five vet female vet technicians who used pentobarbital to die by suicide. Um, so it's not that that never happens in that group, but that wasn't really accounting for that elevated suicide mortality. Okay. Um, so we think that finding is particularly important because it suggests um, if we were to figure out a way to prevent individuals in the profession from using pentobarbital to die by suicide, we'd see the rates similar to the general population. Yeah, that's amazing. So I don't mean to overstate when I say this, but just to sort of summarize back to you. Um, so if you remove pentobarbital from the veterinarian population, we fairly well mirror the general population. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we found in our study. And of course, there are still other veterinarians who died by suicide using other methods, and we'd like to prevent all of those suicides. Um, but if I were forced to answer the question today, why do veterinarians die by suicide more than people of other occupations? I, I feel like our findings really point to that pentobarbital access and knowledge. And, and I think the knowledge is important to emphasize too, because, you know, I, I saw um, the survey that you did suggesting that um, it, you know, it's possible that that technicians, technologists, assistants, could access pentobarbital in the clinics, um, but they don't have the same level of comfort and knowledge with using it um, as veterinarians do. Right. No, that that totally makes sense. That's fantastic uh, information. So what do you see as uh, the short-term and the long-term implications of the research? Where, is there, where, I guess, what does that mean for our profession, do you think? And then, and then where does that kind of send you and your research personally? So let's take this one at a time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one thing that I really want to emphasize is I don't want people to read these findings and panic and think that anyone's calling for veterinarians to no longer be able to access pentobarbital. Right. Um, I don't think anyone is suggesting that or I mean, I would view a person who did very skeptically. Right. Um, I so I think from my vantage point. The next step is conducting research with veterinarians, part, with partnering with veterinarians to figure out, okay, so this is what we found. In all different kinds of settings, what are some solutions that you think might make it a little bit um, more difficult to access pentobarbital in a crisis without getting in the way of what you need to do? Um, and so I know that you've had some ideas uh, about like the four eyes method and, um, and, and reading through that, I think 
that's a, a great initial idea or start, but I'm, I'm sure you've also heard from people who say, well, that would never work in my setting. Sure. And so what, what I would say to those people is, okay, well, let's talk through what, what might work. What are some things that um, wouldn't be a huge pain to do, but could prevent suicide? And we know from other um, studies that these don't have to be massive, onerous changes. Um, the, the study that I cite in the discussion section of the paper <clears throat> is a, a study that was done in Hong Kong where uh, they had seen an increase in suicides that were using um, charcoal. So people mm-hmm. were burning charcoal, I think, in their vehicles and dying by suicide that way. It became a really popular method. <clears throat> so what they did is they did a quasi-experimental experimental study where in one district, if you wanted to buy this type of charcoal, which was at drugstores or pharmacies, um, typically, um, instead of being able to just pull it off the shelf like you had been able to previously, you had to walk up to the counter at the pharmacy and ask for it. It was just stored behind there. They didn't track your name. There was nothing else asked of you. It was just you had to walk up to someone and say, I'd like a bag of charcoal. And then in a neighboring district, they didn't change anything. And they found that the suicide rate went down in the district where you had to just ask for the charcoal. Um, and they did not find evidence that people were substituting other methods. So I feel like that's an interesting parallel to what could work in the veterinary field, where it's not that people were prevented from buying charcoal. And there wasn't an overly burdensome, in my opinion, requirement for them to get it. But it's just that extra act of having to you know, make it known to someone else that you're you're accessing it mm-hmm. um, might be enough to to nudge people away from using it for suicide. It won't be a perfect solution, but yeah. Do you do you buy into the idea that um, in veterinarians uh, or in veterinary medicine there there's a a fairly short window of high risk ideation or behavior, and and getting through that window can be beneficial. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and I think um, there there is research suggesting that, that we know that suicidal crises, at least really intense ones, tend to be short-lived. So if we can, like you said, get people through that window, um, we, can, we have a good chance of saving their life. Now, one thing that I think we need to be careful about um, is um, we, if we make pentobarbital less, accessible as a suicide method. Um, There's a concern that people could shift to something else. Now, in general, um, the the evidence in favor of method substitution, as it's typically referred to, is that people tend to kind of get fixated on one method and they don't readily shift to other methods. Um, But even if they do, if the method they shift to is less lethal than the original method, then that could save their life. So um, there's been a lot of um, work written about this with firearms, since firearms are a very lethal method um, that if we prevent people from using a firearm for suicide and they switch to overdose, and by overdose I mean what a typical person would have access to, they'd be less likely to die. With veterinarians, I think we'd also want to keep an eye on um, it they were to shift toward firearms, which are the most common method of suicide, at least for men in the U.S. Um, We wouldn't, um, 
if we saw that kind of a shift, we might not see an, an actual decrease in the suicide rate. So I think what we want to do is simultaneously promote mean safety for both pentobarbital as well as firearms. So simple things like, you know, if you're in a suicidal crisis, um, asking a friend or relative to hold on to your firearm or keeping it locked and not loaded um, when you, um, most of the time. Just those kind of simple things. So that kind of messaging I think is important to provide in addition to whatever changes are made with pentobarbital. It, it seems like there would be, um, it's a fairly big mental leap. It seems to go from, uh, poisoning to something violent, like firearms to me, those seem to be, I mean, they would, they would seem to be very, very different to individuals. And, and I know that firearms are not nearly as, um, commonly used by women as men. And our profession is, 60% 60% female and, and, and going upwards from there, I think our vet schools are 80% female. Uh, yeah. Do you think that that supports the idea that that mean switching, while while still possible, maybe less likely, I guess, than, than maybe in other professions? I would hope so. Um, yeah. it, it's just hard to say because I do know um, – at least in our sample, a lot of the people who died by suicide were older um, and, and they tend to be older men. And so even though the field, the demographics of the field are rapidly shifting, we've still, I think, got several decades um, of uh, predom- like in our, our sample, I think it was about three quarters of the people who died by suicide were men. Um, and we know firearms are commonly used there. So it's possible that um, because the, the field is becoming increasingly female, if we were to increase mean safety with pentobarbital, we might not see a shift to firearms. Um, and I think that would be wonderful. I just think it's something that we need to keep our eye on. Because um, a lot of the other efforts that are being done nationally to promote mean safety are focused on firearms because they're highly lethal they they're quick acting and you don't have a chance to change your mind or for someone to intervene. Um, and so I think that in the veterinary profession, we've, we've got to keep our eye on both firearms and um, pentobarbital. Do you think that firearms are particularly difficult to talk about with people? Uh, when we talk about restricting access, then we, do we get into some gun control sort of mentality or, or is that not really part of that conversation usually? Um, it can. It, it really depends on how people approach it. And there are um, some there's a lot of wonderful work being done. There are folks at the Harvard School of Public Health um, doing work with firearm safety where they're partnering with gun shop owners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that it's not the researchers who don't like guns against everyone else. It's everyone together who wants to prevent suicide. How can we do this while you're still able to use firearms for the purposes that you want to. Um, And um, I I think a similar approach can be taken with veterinarians where we're not trying to take anything away or keep people from doing what they need to do. We're just trying to work alongside um, members of the profession to keep people safe who might be at risk for suicide because it's really hard, uh, mathematically speaking, it's impossible right now um, to be able to accurately predict 
who is going to die by suicide because it mm-hmm. is overall rare occurrence. So if we can do something that makes it less likely for people to be able to die by suicide, <clears throat> then um, we don't have to know who's going to be at risk at any given moment if everyone's kind of kept safer, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it it definitely does. Where, uh, what's sort of next for you from a research standpoint? Where where are you kind of going from here? Yeah, so um, I think the next step for this research is doing, um, and, and actually I have a new PhD student who's interested in this, working with um, uh, veterinarians and conducting focus groups and more questionnaire studies, but not asking about risk factors for suicide, but but really targeting attitudes toward different types of interventions that we might, or approaches we might take to promoting mean safety. So we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and start testing out an approach to see if it has an impact on suicide before we gauge its acceptability and feasibility within right. the population of veterinarians. And so we ideally we'd want whatever approach or probably multiple approaches we decide upon to be things that generally speaking, people are like, you know, I can get on board with that idea. Now let's see if it works. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. I think, I think it definitely does. I think that's a, I think that that makes a lot of sense as far as, as far as getting buy-in uh, you know, we, we're all in this together. It, you know, it, it's a profession wide, um, problem and and we all have very different circumstances so you mentioned you know four eyes and drug restriction and i i think it i think it works really well in your standard hospital you know that that has set hours and we have technicians we have doctors but you know if you're um if you're a hospice veterinarian who is uh in a vet clinic of one uh that's that that's hard or if you're an ambulatory veterinarian you know they say well how does that work for us and i i don't you know, I, I don't have the answer, and I and I, I sort of say that. So I think I think those types of open to productive discussions, I, I think that makes a world of sense. Yeah, yeah, and and we could think about you know what are different types of changes that could be made across different settings, and there may be some very unique settings for which we just don't have a great solution right now. Um, right. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try in, and, and at least in my, um, from my understanding, um, small animal clinics and hospitals are among the more common types of settings that mm-hmm. people work. In. So if we could come up with a solution that at least works for those folks in combination with other efforts to promote just mental wellness in the profession, I think that could make an impact. No, I agree. Are there any uh, resources that you really like for people who are interested in this topic or, or people who want to kind of learn more? Yeah, so um, I, I see, I, I think on your um, blog, you have already promoted the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, mm-hmm. 1-800-273-TALK, and they have a great website. They also have, um, if someone's in crisis, a chat function if you don't want to talk on the phone, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Lots of information about suicide in general. Um, the American Association of Suicidology is also a really good website with, with again, lots of information about suicide. Um, and the third one I'll throw out there is, um, it's called Means Matter, and that's through the Harvard School of Public Health. And they have lots of information about promoting means safety that relates to some of the things we've been talking about. 
Well, Dr. Woody, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Um, you're doing such important work, and I just, I just want to thank you for that as well. Thank you so much. I've had a really wonderful time. Oh, awesome. We'll talk to you again soon. And that is our episode, gang. I hope it was useful. If you have things you'd like to hear about on the Kona Shame Show or on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, you can always shoot me an email. The email address is podcast at unchartedvet.com. That's podcast at unchartedvet.com. If you're loving the show, uh, definitely leave us an online review at iTunes if that's where you get your podcast. Super helpful for helping people find our podcast. If you're not loving the podcast, uh, you can keep that to yourself or you can send me an email at podcast at unchartedvet.com as well. So anyway, uh, guys, take it easy and we'll see you soon.